Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, and I am your host. Today, we're going to hear part two of the interview we did with Dr. Kristen Sylvian, who is here at the Ruther Library as part of the Sam Fishman Travel Grant, conducting research on her book on Operation Breakthrough. Last time, Dr. Sylvian explained how various entities came together and did amazing sweeping things to get housing made for American citizens. And these were groups that in today's standards would not be in the same table or at least talking to each other. Yeah, those were the good old days when politicians talked to labor and NGOs, when labor had doors open so they could talk of, you know, what's good for society as a whole. So Dr. Sylvian is going to illuminate us on how Governor Romney or Secretary Romney, Troy, what do we do? He was governor of Michigan. Then he became Secretary of HUD. Do I call him former governor, now Secretary of HUD? Or do we just say Secretary of HUD, which is, a, which is higher on the hierarchy of titles? Uh, just call him George. George? <laughs> that's probably wrong. <laughs> I think that's a bad thing to do, yeah. Romney. Secretary Romney. I'm going with that. Secretary Romney um, pushed his ideas he had that he got to get localities to commit and relax racist zoning restrictions in order to build these prefab housing. Now, did it work? Did it continue? Let's find out. I mean, I picture our nation like building an infrastructure, that part of that infrastructure is for equal opportunity employment, and then part of the infrastructure is for fair housing. And Nixon, I think, like Romney, was taken back in his career when he discovered the extent of American opposition to integration. I think he was genuinely shocked. I don't think Romney was as shocked because my sense is is that he was more on the ground and um, got more of a sense of just how much opposition there would be to integration. May recall, um, Romney led Michigan's initiative as the Republican governor. He was the leader for a fair housing law that would apply to the entire state. And that law was defeated um, in 1967. And only after the assassination of Martin Luther King and the passage, um, you know, working its way through Congress was the federal fair housing legislation, then did Michigan's legislature enact the state, what they call it here, open housing law. And I have to say, uh, Daniel, it just broke my heart when I was up at the Bentley. And, you know, I read through all the letters that people sent Romney complaining about his stance on fair housing. Uh, most people know about um, Warren, Michigan, for example, um, some of the more affluent communities where he marched in favor of fair housing. And he was certainly mindful of what it was costing him politically. You know, so there's a big, thick, you know, six or seven inch thick file of all these letters, pretty generic, you know, dear Governor Romney, I'm so disappointed with you, you know, about your stance on fair Mm -hmm. housing. But as I said, then there was a tiny file. 
that had clearly been copied, and those copies were undoubtedly sent to law enforcement because these were the genuine hate mail. Mm -hmm. And both the governor as well as his family, um, their lives were threatened directly and certainly indirectly. And I mean, these letters, I mean, you just, I mean, you'd read them and you'd have to put them aside. I mean, they were just so upsetting and just so devastating for me to think that um, working people um, would become so so um, twisted by racism and racial discrimination and their own class and ethnic and religious biases just broke my heart mm-hmm. that working people didn't see that they too were victims of the banks, the mortgage companies, you know, the builders, the sort of real estate lobby. And that race is a method that's used by people who want to keep working people's economic and social choices so terribly limited to divide working people just as they had in the past you know on the shop floor for example and used as strike breakers Um, but at the same time I am mindful that obtaining home ownership was so difficult for these people you know black and white families they starved themselves They went without shoes and winter coats and turned the heat down in their houses and went without public transportation and denied themselves, you know, uh, education and recreation and all kinds of things to pay that mortgage, to pay their insurance, to pay the maintenance on the house. And so I understand then why when they perceive that racial and class integration would ruin their property values, why they struck back that the way they did. And please, I'm not condoning it. I'm just trying to, as a scholar, understand why that, you know, massive retaliation against a family coming into the neighborhood. Their Operation Breakthrough came in in various cities throughout the country. And you mentioned Warren, Michigan. Is was this a typical reaction to Operation Breakthrough at Warren, Michigan? And if you have any examples of what happened there to give us insight of well, as you mentioned, it's kind of a twisted view of living in harmony. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, um uh, Warren was not a breakthrough city. Oh. So the controversies around um open housing and Warren predate Operation Breakthrough, but they are linked to the Romney administration. Um, Romney, all along, as I said, while he's governor, is painfully aware of how the suburbs, and Warren is kind of the poster child for this, use zoning, use their right, their state-given right, to control land development patterns, building patterns in their community. And like countless other communities, Warren had zoned to keep basically poor people out. So uh, at a time when courts are becoming less and less tolerant of actual racial covenants in property, well, the emphasis just shifts to, well, if the covenants are out, we'll just tinker with the zoning. And there's countless ways, as many scholars have shown, that you can use zoning and building regulations to basically keep the impoverished person out. Things like prohibiting multi-unit dwellings and only single-family homes. As you know, there are restrictions on how big the home must be, setbacks, you have to have a big old lawn, 
basically force builders to build the single family home on the lot with, you know, and that, of course, drives up the cost of the housing. And they're counting on that then to keep people who are lower income out of the community. Warren becomes famous in that when Romney hopes, when he comes to office, you know, I'm a Michigan guy, I know these people, I can negotiate with them, and they'll be reasonable, and they'll see that they have to change, you know, and that they have to start moving towards having more what we now call income integration, right, as well as racial integration in Warren. But the folks in Warren, they don't want to talk to George Romney. They're digging in because, of course, they understand, you know, that Nixon is at the same time kind of sending these messages. And ultimately, right before his reelection in 72, will outright promise suburbanites of America, I will not force racial integration on you. Well, there's the magic words. But Romney, before that kind of showdown comes and Nixon finally reveals his hand that he's not going to help integrate the suburbs, Romney went to Warren and said, you will either change these zoning laws and begin to move towards housing integration, or we'll simply withhold the money that has been either offered to you or you're applying for. So, and of course, there's these account lists for, you know, road improvements, sewer upgrades, any kind of development that is linked to residential development. We're going to withhold the federal money until you guys come around. And then, you know, the kind of square-offs begin, mm -hmm. the marches, the protests, the letters, you know, and that becomes national news. There's another place that is um, Blackjack, Michigan, that is another place that, interestingly enough, while the kind of Nixon backs off on Warren, um, Blackjack, Michigan, they go ahead and institute a suit against that community. So, as I said, it's a funny kind of thing that on one hand, Nixon is backing away from integration, but there's other cases that aren't as high profile that he probably thinks there's not as many voters and this won't show up in the Detroit News and in the free press, then he kind of, so he, he plays both sides of the issue. You know, he's very crafty at that and he's very mm -hmm. good at yeah. it. And of course, Ronald Reagan will, will reap the, the benefits of that, as has every Republican, including President Trump, you know, till to that time. Then there's the actual breakthrough communities themselves. And that's where you have opposition on the local level that Romney totally misled or totally misread, mm -hmm. excuse me. His idea is let's get Operation Breakthrough off the ground quickly. And he understands that public housing and urban renewal gets stymied when you ask the community about, well, where should we build that? Everybody's got a different idea or we'll build it here and everybody fights it. So his idea is we'll just work behind closed doors with governors, with state officials, and we'll decide where we're going to build the breakthrough communities and then we'll announce it. <laughs> Not a good idea. No. Not in 1969. No, no. <laughs> Timing bad, George. Because people just go crazy in almost every one of the nine communities that were ultimately selected for the breakthrough communities. There is a huge public blow up when people find out that these places are not only income integrated, 
So there's supposed to be a breakthrough is going to build affordable housing for the low income family, but also for the middle income family, but they're going to be racially integrated. Oh. Um, you know, while this is the intention for model cities projects, this is the intention for the new communities that the concept is introduced when the law is passed in 1968, none of them get built until much later. But as far as I know, to actually build, these are, again, I think, the first overtly racially integrated and income integrated publicly assisted developments that I know of officially okay. officially right that this was the policy you know there's other places where this happened but it happened for crazy reasons like in los angeles for example during world war ii the la housing authority they just simply integrated their public housing long before any place else did so as i said there's income mixing and racial mixing in places but there's always a story behind mm -hmm. it this is as far as i know the first time the feds say this is the intention this is what we're gonna do and if you don't like it too bad and people didn't like it <laughs> and yeah, no they didn't like it at they all didn't like it at all and so did, did were developments made how many were done and then what happened to romney well um actually there were supposed to be 11 of them Two of them, there were such huge blow-ups that ultimately Romney backs off, and that is Wilmington, um, Delaware. Um, as actually the property was supposed to be in Newcastle, which is the county that, that New Wilmington is set in. And um, there, the property owners um, threatened. They immediately go to court. They immediately get an attorney, and they immediately go to court. And they begin to institute legal proceedings, which Romney clearly understands are going to stretch out the time. His timetable is going to get thrown off. And, of course, it hits the newspapers. When things go to court, they tend to go to the newspapers mm -hmm. then. In Houston, it becomes even more twisted, <laughs> as does Texas so often becomes, <laughs> is um, here we have the site happened to be next to a subdivision that was largely dominated by aerospace workers. And so these white collar workers organize a protest, but they don't go themselves. They're, you know, they're working for a, a federal contractor here you have to be a little careful you know they're not working for the feds but they're working for a federal contractor so they send their wives and they send their wives to picket uh, and that's something to remember about operation breakthrough it was not publicly built these communities were built by private contractors they sent their wives and children to the private developer that had been selected by HUD to build the community, and they pick it with their babies and their baby carriages, and they sign, they hold signs like, nip HUD in the bud, <laughs> because they were certain that if these breakthrough houses were built, they would diminish their property values um, because of either the quality of the housing or the presence of low income folks, mm -hmm. which of course to them suggested that African-Americans may be moving in or perhaps Mexican-Americans. And they thought it would be impossible for them to sell their house. And so they were determined to keep that from happening. So the Houston and the Newcastle Delaware projects were canceled. 
In other places, like little Kalamazoo, Michigan, of course, Romney was greatly embarrassed that in his home state, um, Kalamazoo residents organized in opposition, but he should have known because Kalamazoo throughout the 30s resisted any kind of New Deal funds and tried to be the city that didn't take federal aid, which of course ultimately <laughs> didn't work, um, but they tried to keep but and they did they there was no public housing in Kalamazoo and mm. um it only came during the great society years mm. after you know the desegregation of housing um so uh, Kalamazoo was a nightmare for Romney the only places that really weren't problematic were places like Jersey City which is the most urbanized of the breakthrough sites where, you know, Jersey City was already, if the housing wasn't directly integrated, certainly neighborhoods were at least moving towards integration. And um, the breakthrough site was in a much larger urban renewal program that was pegged for workers heading into Manhattan. This is when they're building and improving the path trains that bring people mm -hmm. from the Jersey side over into Manhattan. And so from the get-go, the whole project was kind of like what's their problem I mean people were already in that kind of they just saw it as like a Manhattan in the annex right. it was a no just a, exactly yeah. so um, that was not the problem but ultimately as I said HUD only backed down on two of the communities um, and the rest of them got the integrated, economically integrated and racially integrated housing. Um, the Macon story is particularly colorful because there was a mayor down there who um, um, couldn't keep his mouth shut. He didn't have a Twitter line, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> But he couldn't resist shooting his mouth off constantly and shooting himself in the foot. Um, so, but but Macon ultimately got um, a very desirable um, uh, area, a waterfront, a lake area that was all developed with a park and so forth, and became one of Macon's choice um, integrated um, housing communities. Which, of course, there was just a small handful of integrated, uh, economically and racially integrated neighborhoods in Macon during the late 1960s and it wasn't completed until 71 i think okay yeah so so romney steps well has to step down from hud yes yes and nixon takes off on his we will not integrate the suburbs type thing and we were going to back back to what you were mentioning about the housing and and how the the the, um, the fear was raised through nixon yes. solidified by reagan yes. and now we're living it can you describe these conditions currently within the housing the housing motif of what we're talking about yes. from there to where we are right now? Well, you know, it's in one sense, um, you know, I, I like to think of breakthrough in, in a sense it would kind of it was it came too soon. Hmm. I think that if Breakthrough had been launched, even 10 years later, the results might have been markedly different. Um, but I think that for many Americans, and again, I'm, I'm not sort of defending the reaction, but the, the changes, I mean, Romney was so ambitious trying to bring all of these changes. I mean, basically, federal money becomes problematic as inflation grows and the war in Vietnam and then ultimately Watergate will come to completely dominate 
eliminate everything. All these domestic projects and programs all get derailed in the early 70s. And it kind of sort of leads us up to more um, the kind of home um, mortgage crisis of, mm-hmm. you know, 2007. Mm-hmm. And um, certainly, you know, what we have throughout the um, 60s and 70s is still pretty firm federal regulation of home finance. And I think that that comes right out of, you know, FDR and the response to the Great Depression. And working people kind of carry with them throughout the 60s and 70s that kind of fear of getting in too much debt. And um, but then, you know, as, as I see kind of deindustrialization and manufacturing kind of collapses, not only in Detroit and Michigan, but in the nation as a whole, and it becomes less and less important to our national economy, housing rises, right? Housing becomes the growth industry. You know, we put this enormous pressure on housing to kind of fill the shoes that are emptied by the automation and then the import of American industry. And that changes, you know, pressure on builders. It certainly changes the home mortgage Mm -hmm. business. And housing prices begin to rise. And in response, the mortgage companies relax underwriting and become up with these numerous programs, very creative programs to... Um, bypass or stretch federal laws protecting particularly minority borrowing and disclosure. Um, And all of these things kind of come together to create the home finance crisis of 2007. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge, I mean, housing is just such an enormously complex problem. I heard this morning that really only... Um, in this economic quarter, I mean, um, the percent of Americans who are homeowners started to grow again, but the steady growth has only now, just we now have several quarters in a row mm-hmm. where, once again, the percentage of Americans who are becoming homeowners is growing. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's now it's either 62 point something, 60, roughly 63% of Americans. And um, housing is, well, you know, luckily the percentage of um, homeownership continues to rise. That doesn't necessarily mean, though, that that's an entirely positive indicator because, as I understand it, the amount of income that people have to take to become or maintain homeownership is growing to the point where there are sizable numbers of people who are spending 50% of their income or more to pay that mortgage, to pay the taxes, to pay, you know, to keep the basically the roof over the family's head. And so that's something that we as a country have to come up with ways to make housing more affordable. Mm -hmm. And whether that means tolerating as a society lower rates of home ownership or to come up with new ways, and get, that brings us back full circle to Ruther and to the labor and the UAW, is that um, Ruther, the UAW, the CIO, the AFFL, 
wanted to establish a third route for American workers, that we needed non-commercial housing opportunities, non-profit housing, whether it was union-owned, community organization-owned, veterans might own it. Um, you could put together any number of kinds of organizations. It might be Wayne State Alumni Association, mm -hmm. but any number of organizations could become developers of nonprofit housing and Michigan has some dazzlingly successful examples of cooperative home ownership including some that automobile workers were involved in cooperative home ownership in Pontiac um, through a building society so they were a cooperative in the building phase and built the houses cooperatively at a place called West Acres in Pontiac Pontiac. Hmm. And um, there's records here in the in the archives that speak to West Acres. And after the building phase was over, then the cooperative dissolved itself and it sold to the shareholders their homes. So they owned them traditionally. In um, a place, there's a place called Kramer Homes um, that's here in Metro Detroit. That's an example of what we call a limited equity cooperative in the sense that when you want to leave the cooperative, you sell your share back to the co-op and they'll give you a small amount of return on your investment. But it's not the kind of killing, you know, that you hope to make when you sell the big suburban McMansion out there and think that, oh, yeah. <laughs> So, as I said, so, so um, labor has shown, in summary, that there are numerous routes to home security, right, to a good, a decent home, an affordable home, a solid home for your household. And certainly labor has always been an, a supporter of our commercial for-profit real estate. One could argue it's as old as America itself. But at the same time, labor has always been an advocate for nonprofit housing, supporting public housing in its various incarnations over time, supporting responsible lending and disclosure. And then I think personally, most importantly, labor has always been an articulate and um, worthy and um, solid supporter of the third way, the alternate way. And that is coming up with the kind of high that brings together some aspects of nonprofit housing and some aspects of the commercial and creates cooperative housing, which brings together those things. And that is what I think that we need more um, cooperative and non-commercial um, housing opportunities in places like Metro Detroit and other um, housing markets, whether they are ones where the lack of affordability is a problem or structural issues are a problem. Um, cooperatives can help in all of those. They're not a panacea, but I think that they are a, a step in the right direction that offers working people more alternatives. You know what? That's a great way to wind it up. Thank you very well, much certainly. for doing this podcast with sure. us. Sure. And that concludes our interview with Dr. Sylvian. Uh, Dr. Sylvian came to the Ruther Library because she got the Fishman Grant that provides up to $1,000 to support travel to the Ruther Library to use our archival records related to the American labor movement. The award is named in honor of Sam Fishman, former UAW Michigan AFL-CIO leader. We give out about five or six per year, so if you're interested, why don't you go to our website, www.ruther.wayne.edu. 
And next podcast will be me on the other side of the microphone, if that's possible. I'll be talking about um, a teacher's walkout, not last year, but in the 1930s. Thanks, all. Say goodbye, Troy. Goodbye, Troy. Okay? Yep. All right. Is this too close or is this okay? Trouble is I can't see you. Do you want me to move my computer? No, it's okay. We'll figure it out. I can move my computer. But you can always stop me. I'll just wave crazily. Like, Dan, you mispronounced your name again. Goldner. (laughs) Goldfarb. Go, go, Galadner. I had that one. That, that one. one was pretty good. Actually, when my mom ran for a political office, that was our slogan. Go, go, Galadna. Nice. <laughs> she lost. Oh. She didn't really run. She said, I'll do it, but I'm not going to do anything for it. Yeah, she lost by like 20 votes. That's pretty good for not trying. What what office was this? I can't remember. <laughs> it was high school. <laughs> something to do with the county commissioner or something like that. I don't know. Anyway. Goldener. Hello and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner and I am your host. In this podcast, we are going to...